Great London Fog by Edwin Muller. The fog that descended on Britain in December 1952 was no typical fog. It began like an ordinary English fog, the kind that makes London indescribably lovely. Towards twilight, the city is veiled in a silvery gold mist through which you can see about a hundred metres. All the lights have halos. From the embankment, the massive buildings along the Strand have all the mystery of oriental palaces, their outlines softened and shadowy. The whole city hangs in the heavens, Whistler said. On the afternoon of Thursday, December 4, 1952, there was nothing to indicate that this would be the fog of the century, that it would kill about 4,000 persons, cause property damage of many millions of pounds, and bring the activities of the great metropolis almost to a halt. By Friday morning, a heavy, wet blanket had closed down. You could just see your own feet. The streets were a queer, unfamiliar world. As you groped along the sidewalk, blurred faces without bodies floated past you. Sounds were curiously muffled. Motor car horns, grinding brakes, the warning cries of pedestrians trying to avoid the traffic and one another. This was a real pea super, a London particular. The main arteries leading into the centre of town were clogged with buses moving at three kilometres an hour. The conductors walked ahead, calling directions to the drivers. Private cars formed convoys, 15 or 20 in line. Sometimes a driver got impatient, tried to get ahead, usually with disastrous results. Cars got hopelessly lost. Police were powerless to untangle the traffic snarls that developed at converging streets. Drivers abandoned their cars, further blocking traffic. A remarkable feat was performed by a man with three heavy bags who had to get from Liverpool Street to Euston Station, a distance of three kilometres, through as complex a maze of streets as there is in London. He persuaded a taxi driver to take the job. The passenger walked ahead, stopping for frequent consultations with the driver. It took them nearly all day, but they made it. At London Airport, a few planes made instrument landings. One pilot, after landing, got lost trying to taxi to the passenger terminal. After half an hour, a search party went out to look for him, but it got lost too. Soon all air traffic was suspended. Many who ordinarily travelled by bus took the subways. Platforms got so crowded that the gates had to be closed. People waited in long lines to get into the stations. One way or another, most of them eventually got to their jobs that day. Londoners have a special competence for getting around their labyrinthine city without much help from their eyes. Five years of wartime blackouts had trained them. As the day went on, the fog changed colour. In the early morning it had been a dirty white. When a million chimneys began to pour coal smoke into the air, it became light brown, dark brown, black. It got into your nose, your throat, your lungs. By afternoon all London was coughing. Even yet most Londoners weren't seriously worried, except the weather forecasters. Fog occurs when a body of moist air is cooled and condenses into tiny droplets, which attract and hold particles of soot and smoke. Ordinarily, fog is dissipated by wind. The lightest current of air is enough, or the fog rises into the cooler layers of air that usually lie above it. Now there was no wind, and no promise of any. 
Worse, the layer of air above the fog was not cooler but warmer. Meteorologists call this rare occurrence an inversion roof. The upper warmer layer acts as a lid, holding the fog down. And hour by hour, its content of smoke and soot grows denser. By Saturday morning, thousands of Londoners began to be frightened. They were those persons, mostly over 50, who had a tendency to bronchitis or asthma. In a long black fog, such people are in acute distress. Their lungs burn, their hearts labour, they gasp for breath. They feel as if they are choking to death, and sometimes they do. By Saturday noon, all the doctors in London were on the run. Even with transportation normal, they couldn't have reached all the patients who needed them. Some of them stayed in their offices and tried to help sufferers by phone. But there wasn't much to suggest, except to try to get to an oxygen tent. All hospitals were overworked. A mounting number of deaths was reported. In this abnormal, unreal world of the fog, some people changed from their normal selves. It was impossible for the police to prevent the looting of stores. But the fog also brought out the best in people. There were milkmen who worked 15 hours a day to make deliveries. Hundreds of volunteers stayed all day at bad street crossings, guiding people across. A man and his wife came out of a subway exit, wondered which way to start to their home nearby. A stranger appeared out of the fog and asked if he could help. When they told him where their house was, he led them straight home. Thanking him, they asked how he could be so sure of himself. I'm blind, he said. He had been working happily all day, guiding people in this neighbourhood that he knew. Workers who couldn't get home slept in their offices or went to police stations and were put up overnight. Members of Parliament were issued blankets and bunked down in the lounges of the house. Firemen answering calls walked ahead of their engines. Police patrolled the docks in life jackets because people who couldn't see the ground walked off into the water. A policeman at the Albert docks pulled out eight but too often the victims, though their cries were heard, couldn't be found. As the great fog continued, Londoners adopted an attitude of doggedly carrying on. At Sadler's Wells, they got through the first act of La Traviata before so much fog had seeped into the theatre that the singers could no longer see the conductor. Movie houses carried on in a limited way. Spectators in the front four or five rows could see the screens. On Sunday morning, the fog was thicker than ever. At times, visibility got down to 28 centimetres. Literally, you couldn't see your hand held out in front of your face. All over London, middle-aged and elderly persons were choking their lives away. The city grew very quiet. Nearly all traffic had come to a halt. The only thing to be heard was the muffled sound of church bells and the bells of ambulances groping their way towards victims of the fog. It was cold that day. On the outskirts of town, men and women, lost in the murk, sat down, and later were found dead of exposure. In South London, 50 bodies were taken to one mortuary. Towards noon on Monday, the fog lifted a little, then came down again. Then it rose a little more. Finally, all was clear. Londoners rubbed the soot out of their eyes and saw a city covered with dirt. Every piece of furniture had a slimy black film. Curtains were so encrusted with soot that when they were cleaned, they went to pieces. Blonde women became brunettes. It was weeks before the hairdressers and laundries and cleaners caught up with their work. 
the average weekly number of deaths in London in December is 2,000 or less. For the week of the fog, however, 4,703 deaths were recorded. The following week, the total was 3,139. Dr. W.P.D. Logan, Britain's chief medical statistician, writing in Britain's medical journal The Lancet, estimates that the four-day fog was responsible for some 4,000 deaths. How to prevent its happening again? London will always have fogs. To prevent a white fog from turning black and killing people, you need to reduce the volume of smoke that is poured into the air. But in London, the factories are not the chief cause of the killing black fog. Rather, it is the domestic hearth, the open fireplace burning soft coal that heats most English homes. In London's population of 8 million, there are probably 2 million such fires going every cold day, each one rolling out its cloud of black smoke. Open soft coal fires are inefficient. They produce more smoke and less heat than any other heating method. Then why not change? Because Englishmen like open fires and insist on having them. For 800 years they have been burning coal in their fires. Sea coal it used to be called. It has always been the only fuel most people could afford. And for 800 years the Englishman's rulers have been trying to make him stop burning soft coal. It is recorded that Queen Elizabeth I findeth herself greatly grieved and annoyed by the taste and smoke of the sea coals. She tried to stop it, as did the Stuarts and many later governments. In the winter of 1879-80, there were almost continuous black fogs for four months, and deaths in London were 10,000 above the average. But efforts to abolish the soft coal open hearth failed, and so it is today. Some houses in London have converted to central heating in oil. Many new homes have modern methods of heating. But far more of them, new and old, stick to the old open hearth. More than a question of cost, it is the Englishman's stubborn insistence on his fireside. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.